stories to you. Hello, my name is Magdalena Ball, and I'm pleased to be hosting this conversation with Emily McGuire as part of the Newcastle Writers Festival Stories to You series in 2021. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which I live and work, the Awabakal people, and to pay my respect to elders past, present, and emerging. I'd also like to thank you, listeners, for your ongoing support of the Newcastle Writers Festival. Today's guest, Emily McGuire, is the author of five novels and three nonfiction books. Her previous novel, An Isolated Incident, was shortlisted for the Stella Prize, the ABIA Literary Fiction Book of the Year, and the Miles Franklin Literary Award. Emily's articles and essays on sex, feminism, culture, and literature have been published widely, including in the Sydney Morning Herald, The Australian, The Observer, and The Age. Emily works as a teacher and a mentor to young and emerging writers and was the 2018 slash 2019 writer in residence at the Charles Perkins Center at the University of Sydney, where she wrote a large proportion of the novel that we're going to talk about today, Love Objects. Emily, welcome. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. So can I ask you just to open the show by reading a little bit from Love Love Objects, if that's okay? Yeah, of course. Um, I'm going to read from a little way along in the book, and the main character, Nick, is in, uh, is in the hospital. Um, she's been told that her house is too full of stuff and someone will need to clean it out, and she's uh, starting to confront this thing that's been said to her. So she's talking to a nurse here called Con. Can I ask you something, she says. Con has been fiddling with her drip and jotting things down on her chart for the last couple of minutes. The pen is in his mouth as he fiddles some more. He makes a noise she interprets as, yes. Say you had to get rid of some of your things. Say, I don't know, like a third of your stuff. Mm-hmm. He stops fiddling for a second, then continues. But Nick feels the change in his listening, knows he must be aware of her situation. She feels unable to turn back. So out of all the people who come and go at your place, All of them, all your brothers and sisters, nieces and nephews, workmates, neighbours, just out of everyone you know, is there anyone you'd trust to do that for you? Like to choose what stays and what goes? Con smiles. Sure, I can think of 10, 15 people, maybe more. Really? Does she even know that many people? If she counts everyone at work, including the casuals, then maybe... You wouldn't worry, she says, that their idea of the important stuff will be different to yours. He considers it. There's this artist in London, right? He got all of his stuff together, like everything. Chairs and towels and empty chip packets. His own art, pieces from friends, photos, letters. His bloody car, which was a Saab or something. And he destroyed it all. Like every single thing he owned. Drugs, says Nick. I don't know if he had any, but if he did, they'd have been in there. No, I mean, was he on drugs? Is that why he did it? No, no, it was art. He did it in the middle of Oxford Street, invited people to watch, put on a boiler suit, played some Bowie, smashed it all up into nothing. It took weeks. What a terrible thing to do. You'd have to be a psychopath. Well, Con says, he was being deliberately provocative, challenging people to think about Oh, consumerism and identity and all that. Like, who are we without our possessions? If he wanted to know who he was without his possessions, he could have just given them away. 
yeah, but that's not us. It's just like a life experiment, I guess, says Nick. Sounds like an idiot, though. Look, probably he is, but here's the interesting thing. The public was mostly on board, critics too. They were all down with consumerism, smash up that big screen TV, pulverise those state-of-the-art speakers. But when it came to the love letters and photos, the art, they were like, no, that's inhuman. Those things aren't objects. How could you? Nick is still concentrating on her breathing. The story feels like a trap. She doesn't know what kind or when it will spring. Con goes on. I think it tells you that most people agree about what's important. Most people found the destruction of those items painful, considered them a different category. To anyone with a brain, with a heart, it all would have been painful, Nick wants to say. A Saab? In her whole life, she would not earn enough money to have a bloody Saab or a TV not from Kmart or half the stuff the wanker destroyed. What did he do with it all after, she asked, the smashed up stuff? Oh, I don't know, actually. Chucked it, I guess. Yeah, but where? Like, it must have been a lot to get rid of. He would have needed a couple of trailers, at least. Con laughs. Uh, big important artist. Bet he had someone else to worry about those details. <laughs> That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Someone else to worry about all the details. Well, he says, that's the one good thing about being stuck here. You get to relax and live like a London performance artist for a bit. Lucky me, Nick says. She wants to know what the artist did when he was finished, when everything was destroyed, when he went home and realised he didn't have a bed to sleep on or a plate to eat off, no toothbrush or soap or loo paper. But Con is already wishing her a good night, saying he'll see her tomorrow. Mm, good, thank you. We, we get a really great sense of Nick and her, her personality and her pathology is a little bit there as well. Um, so I know that you worked on the book during your residency at, at the Charles Perkins Center, which is such an interesting idea. We can talk about that a little bit more later. But, um, and I know you, you probably started with Nick, and I, I'm hesitant to use the word, so um, Nick's issue. <laughs> I don't want to give away spoilers, but it's really hard to talk about her without uh, mentioning, but I think you've made it fair. We can clear. say she has too much stuff. Yes, that's right. I think you made that fairly clear. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there, there's no hint in your, um, a year ago when you were talking about the book about Lena. Did she come along later? Um, Lena? Uh, came, Lena? Yeah. yeah, she came, she came early on in terms of, uh, so Lena's the niece and she is really close to her auntie Nick. And I always had that relationship in the book. Um, I really, for, you know, for personal reasons, um, I'm, a, I'm an auntie um, who has found my life taken over in the best possible way by my nieces and nephews, which is a thing you can't plan. It's really down to other people's choices that you have all these kids in your life. Uh, so I've been wanting to write a novel that featured that kind of relationship for a while. Um, and I also wanted, in this case, you know, Nick does have some trouble. She has some real challenges um, that she's been hiding. And I wanted to look at this idea of, um, you know, who are we responsible for? What do we owe to each other? And when someone's immediate family, like if, if it's your mum or your daughter or your sister, there is a real expectation, of course, you know, in many families you're going to step in and help. But I wanted to remove that relationship a little bit and see... Um, 
what would happen when a character who's a niece who is is a young adult she's only 20 um no one would really realistically expect her to actually take on her auntie's burdens in this way and so I thought that was a really interesting thing to look at why someone like her might do that and might take that on um so yes that relationship was there from the start in terms of what kind of happens to Lena in her own relationships in a scandal at her university that is something that definitely grew um, as I was writing the novel. As you were actually based at the, the university, it's not a particularly <laughs> flattering picture. Did you worry they might go, oh, we, we were kind of hoping you might be a little more flattering towards us? <laughs> um, so I deliberately don't name the university, um, but, but people, will, <laughs> people will be familiar. Um, but I, I, I didn't do that. But I, I think the... I think especially given, I mean, when we're recording this in March, um, given the news lately mm. and given the um, bursts of news that mean that this kind of uh, scandal with the ill treatment of girls and women is unfortunately a reoccurring thing all over the place, <laughs> all over the place. And so, you know, in that sense, um, it is something that is hard not to come across those stories. Um, when you're talking about um, digital life, the kind of uh, dating experiences of someone in that age group, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, it's extraordinary, really. Like it shouldn't be. It's not extraordinary, but it's it, it, it's incredible how deeply you've kind of touched the zeitgeist. I wish it wasn't the case, uh, but yeah. the book is really um, it really touches that vein and it deals with it in quite a, a powerful and sensitive way. Um, there, there are no easy answers, but you know, you seem to really draw out all the complexities not and, and not just focus on what happens to Lena, but Lena's relationship with Nick and her brother Will. And, you, you know, I, I really found that um, you created quite a, quite a complex book that, you know, starts off with kind of one note being Nick and then just little by little, almost as if you were adding items into a house that's already full. <laughs> uh, in fact, it is, it, to me, it seemed almost like a mirror of what Nick's doing when she keeps bringing in something that has resonance for her, that, you know, we keep getting another piece that adds to the complexity of the book in, a, in almost a symphonic way. Oh, that's a, that's a lovely way to look at it. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, certainly one of the big thematic things that, that was in my mind while I was writing it, um, you know, in, in terms of Nick's experience of, of keeping everything and having all this stuff was the sense that, that things, things can't leave you. Things don't go anywhere. So the meaning you attach to those things, the feelings you have from those things remain uh, relatively static, although adding other things to them can help it too or can change it, I should say. So there's so something that Nick does is when she brings new things into her home, she'll often rearrange other things uh, as if those objects are in relationship to each other. Um, and that is a very uh, controlled way of relating to, to her own emotions and her own memories. Whereas people, family or otherwise, are messy. They make choices. They leave. They shut you They're out. They, they're irrational. They contest your memory of things. They say it wasn't like that. This, this was really what happened. I remember this differently. Um, the objects don't do that. The objects, they hold the memory that Nick has seemingly sort of frozen in a way that, that feels right to her and that comforts her. Yes, yeah, she, she anthropomorphizes 
her belongings quite um, quite extensively. They they really are alive to her, aren't they? Oh yeah, very very much. Um, she she really she she puts feelings and emotions into the object, but she also does something which uh, I've known people who do this, and it's really beautiful. Is to to think about the provenance of an object, and not in a way of like a valuable painting or antique that you're tracing it through who it belonged to. But, you know, in terms of there's a, there's a bonnet that she picks up from a park, like a doll's bonnet early on in the book, and thinking about who has sewn those stitches, who has put, attached that ribbon to that, and, and really thinking about the care that goes into things and having a sense that to, to discard things, uh, to treat any of her things like rubbish would be in some way disrespecting or dishonouring all of, all of that energy and all of that work and care that's gone into making things. Yes, and, and that's, you know, that's something that comes out quite a lot in the reading that you did, this, this notion of wanting to just go that next step and say, well, I can't leave the story there. I can't just, you know, <laughs> you can't tell me he burned all this stuff. I want to know what happened when he went home. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, um, she's a very compelling character. When you were at Charles Perkins Center, did you, um, did you actually do research on the, um, the keeping lots of things condition? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I did. So, so I, I don't mind saying the, um, the, the condition that I um, was doing research into at the Charles Perkins Centre at Sydney University is hoarding disorder, which is a, a specific uh, condition that's listed in the DSM-5, the Psychiatric Manual. Um, it's a fairly new addition to that manual. It used to be considered um, a subset of OCD, that set of behaviours. So because it's fairly new, there is a lot of exciting thinking and research going on around that behaviour. Um, obviously, in my novel, I didn't want to, um, like it's not a self-help manual for people who have this kind of behaviour um, and it's not a scientific interrogation into it either, but it was really important to me. I'd been wanting to write about um, our relationship to stuff as humans, whether that's having way too much of a, or an obsession with minimalism or all those kind of questions just has fascinated me for at least a decade. Um, and I, I didn't want to attempt a book like this until I felt I could get a really deep understanding of what might drive some of this. Um, again, not to necessarily consciously put it in the book, um, but just to know that I was not going to be exploitative, that I wasn't going to be sort of harmful in any way in my depiction. And so um, having the Writer-in-Residence Fellowship at Charles Perkins Centre, it did allow me to look into a lot of the research, but also to connect with um, uh, the strong connections there with various um, hospitals and frontline workers who, who work with people um, who, for instance, might be uh, brought into the hospital after an accident and then uh, judgments are made about whether their home is safe to return to. Mm. And so being able to speak to people who really deal with that um, frontline kind of lived experience without, you know, those, those workers and those people in that situation, they're not necessarily putting labels on it at all. They're not calling it hoarding disorder or putting any kind of, um, yeah, any kind of label on it. They're just dealing with the immediate problem of uh, can this person be safe? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, how we judge people and situations is a key underlying theme of the book, isn't it? It seems to run through this whole notion of judging by appearances, judging by situations, judging by, you know, clothing, all of that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think shame is a huge factor. And for someone like Nick, shame plays a really big part in 
in her life in that she is actually really happy in her home. It is a haven for her. It is filled with things she loves and it makes her feel really good. And it's only the external eye, other people coming into that, which which makes it not that. And that is all to do with shame for her. And, of course, Lena with her experiences um, being shamed online through something that happens to her, um, she's sort of dealing that in another way too. And then Will, Lena's brother, is dealing with the shame of, you know, his big mistake from his past, which he feels like he can't ever really get away from. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess the thing with, with all those sort of layers of that, what I want to do is that each of these three people, they, they do love each other. They're a relatively happy family, although, you know, troubled in, in various ways. Um, but they each kind of think that the other is fine, you know, and I think that's something that happens that when we're sort of in, in the group of shame in that way, it can be really hard to see uh, that other people feel similarly, that if you just talked about it, <laughs> maybe everything would be a lot easier. But you can kind of, even when you're surrounded by people you love, get really locked in this little bubble of shame and, and not, not speak about it and not ask for help. Mm. Yes, everybody is a little locked in their own, their own pain and shame. And, mm. you know, to, to the point where I guess there's almost a, I guess, dramatic irony as the reader is, you know, going, say it. <laughs> Just say it. Um, You're listening to the Newcastle Writers Festival Stories to You podcast series. And my name is Magdalena Ball. And I'm speaking with Emily McGuire about her new book, Love Objects. So um, I want to talk a little bit about the ecological undertones to the book. They're very subtly handled and and maybe um, in the first reading or immediately overshadowed by what happens to Lena. But it does seem to me that there is a real parallel between the way, for example, you handle the bushfire season, which is kind of um, uh, an undertone of the book, and uh, the way in which Lena suffers as well. Mm. Yeah, um I, I think for me, I'm at a point um, where I feel like contemporary fiction has to have some element of the climate crisis or climate catastrophe in there because especially with younger characters, not that we're not all facing it, but um, particularly people in Lena and Will's age group, um, it is an ever-present thing. And uh, the Sydney bushfires uh, from end of 2019 they they really brought it to us in the city in a way that we have been you know lucky enough to not be confronted with in the same way you know we had days and days and this is the period in which the book is set where there was just ash raining from the sky you know our cars our windows our clothes (laughs) were covered in it and stunk of it and so that was very confronting but it was just that period of it being literally shoved in our faces or dropped on our faces it, it didn't just start happening then, right? And we all knew that the conditions that were building up to make this a more likely occurrence, these kind of really terrible raging fires, um, like we all know, we can't pretend we don't know. And so that was something for me that on, in, a, in the very first instance, that characters Lena and Will's age, it is just part of, you know, if they're worried about, well, not worried about, but they're dealing with the internet, they're dealing with the fact that people can Google them and find out the worst thing they ever did no matter what else they do after that, all these kind of things that we, you know, I think most of us accept as part of contemporary life and therefore has a place in contemporary fiction. Um, I think it's wrong to think that that climate change and the environment is some separate kind of book that deals with those issues because it it just really is part of that landscape. 
Um, and then, of course, I think as you were as you were getting at as well, there are, there are real thematic um, links as well. I mean, the the attitude towards many in our society, it's sort of a cliche now to say we're a throwaway society, um, but we are. <laughs> we just really are. Um, that there is a lot of harm that is done um, by people who chuck everything away all the time. And yet the judgment on someone who doesn't, who keeps things, who sees value in every object, who uh, cherishes objects, um, is, yeah, I, I just think that's an interesting thing to look at. Mm. Yes, even this whole notion of people, you know, what is normal and what isn't normal or what is perceived as, you know, again, from that little excerpt that you read in the beginning, this idea of people sort of applauding and, you know, saying, oh, down with consumerism, even as, you know, a fairly well-to-do artist is quite happily, you know, wasting a whole pile of things. Right. And, you know, I ended that passage with Nick wondering what, what would happen when he got home. But I think we all know what would happen is he'll just buy him again. the stuff he needs. And that's, you know, with all the stuff with people who have a real thing of minimalism or I know it's been a thing during the pandemic for a lot of people to chuck everything out, you know, Marie Kondo, their place. Um, and I, I definitely see the appeal. Um, but the thing is, if you have a certain level of privilege and wealth, you can do that knowing oh, I can just replace this if I need it. You know, you hear people saying, well, I don't need all these shoes. If I need white strappy shoes <laughs> on some occasion, I'll just go and buy some. Um, but there is a certain level of privilege in that because there, there are people who are like, well, I, I need this and I need to keep this. And, um, and again, I think it is something that everyone or most people can understand on some level as we saw again in the early days of the pandemic when we had the great toilet paper hoarding situation, which we were laughing about. But what, what were people doing? They were worried they would run out of something that if they didn't have it, it would be in some way an attack on, you know, dignity, on basic uh, bodily, you know, that, that whole thing of shame comes up again. And, and people were worried they just weren't going to have that thing, so it's better to have too much of it. And that kind of uh, feeling drives a lot of behaviour of someone like Nick as well and other people who have a lot of stuff is a feeling they don't necessarily feel rightly or wrongly that they will be able to access what they need when they need it. Mm. Yes. I also felt there was a kind of in that connection between sort of nature um, and the oppression of women that there is a link there. So like, you know, eco-feminist, if you like, um, perspective that, you know, the way in which the world is being treated and, and you refer to this a little later on in, in the book too. There's a, I think there's a quote that very specifically refers to um, you know, melting of the Arctic or, you know, various other things that are happening in the world. And um, this idea of dominating nature yeah. being connected with what happens to Lena. Yeah, that, that's definitely in there too. Um, I, I think that, again, is something that is almost um, necessary in a portrayal of, of women of her generation as well, whether they would articulate it in that particular way or not. I think it, it is almost instinctual of understanding. Yeah, yeah. So Will, Will's kind of a counterbalance in this story to, say, Josh. Right. Um, I mean, he's he's not privileged. Yeah. Josh is privileged. Um, you know, he's kind of kind and self-deprecating. And Josh, well, we won't talk about what Josh is like, but, you know, it, I think self-deprecation, no. Yeah. Um, they're just different types of men. And yet there's a kind of link between them that goes maybe a little bit beyond Lena. Oh, can you say more about that? I'm trying to think <laughs> how, they're, how they're linked. 
the link between the two of them. I feel they're yeah. both oppressed in the same, in not um, mm. to the same extent, but they're both oppressed by toxic masculinity in one form. Oh yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. Just, just um, as it's not just the women who are hurt by these. No, kind, you know, the, no, the, and I, I standards. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do think that's really important. I think um, there was a sense when when I was right, well, not just when I was writing this. It's a sense I get often actually, but. Um, it's it's quite hard for young men to know how to be, <laughs> um, and that is also true for young women, of course. But for everyone young, we all go through that. Who am I? What's the right way to be in the world? All that kind of stuff. But it does feel like, and this is largely thanks to feminism, there is a lot more discussion about that for girls, like how what you can aspire to. That there's no one correct way of being a woman. There are, there are a lot of choices and obviously uh, that, uh, that theory doesn't play out well enough, often enough in real life. That's the other stuff we've been talking about, the promise to young women that they can be anything they like and that they won't be punished for being different to the standard. That, that doesn't prove true a lot of the time, but, but that discussion is still there, that theory, the sense that that, that is something to strive for is still there. Um, I do still think, you know, you use the phrase toxic masculinity and there is a much narrower idea still about how to be a man. Um, we could even dig in closer and say how to be an Australian man. Um, and class and privilege comes into that. So Josh has certain ideas um, what, what men of his class and from his family background are supposed to be like. What, um, that he needs to in some way act in a particular way because his classmates will um, punish him if he doesn't. Um, and for Will, it's a sense of how to, how to be a good man, how to, how to be all the things that people say men should be when he doesn't really have any role models or any guidance, when there are things that are, are so confusing about that sometimes. And he, he doesn't really know, like I think he does say at one point, you can't just Google, you know, how to be a good man and... Um, but also I mean, he, seems he probably to, can. He seems to, you know, be a good man. And yet, you know, it's the fact that maybe he's too good that, you know, he's rejected for it in a way. Yeah. And that's, that's confusing for him. But mm. he, he is, he's going off these ideals of, of generosity. I mean, part of his particular situation is that his father, who was a good man, as far as he knows and anyone knows, was a good man. And he, he died quite young. And so Will kind of has this, as sometimes happens when someone dies down, has this, um, you know, angelic figure almost of a father um, who died before Will could ask some of those hard questions about, you know, the situations where the way to go isn't, isn't quite as clear as it might be. Mm. Yeah, so I just love those dynamics and the way these characters play off one another. Um, you've done a lot of residencies and it's pretty obvious <laughs> that the locations kind of become the book's backdrop. Do you, do you go for the residency where you want to set the book or do you just go like, okay, I'm here, it's all going to get in there? <laughs> um, a, a bit of both. It, it, sometimes it can be the, the very opposite, like an isolated incident which is set in rural New South Wales. Uh, that was mostly written in Paris while I was on residency there. There's, there's, not a, there's not a hint of Paris in that book. Um, but I think there's a, a, what, what I sort of noticed in myself was a real um, renewed passion and interest in the more slangy vernacular Australian I grew up with. 
um, in the language and that that was kind of in stark relief in Paris where I just struggled to communicate <laughs> with anyone every day and that, that that sort of childhood or or teenage language that was so familiar to me, I, I really um, loved writing in that and that comes through in that book. So, yeah, place is always important but how it comes through is slightly different. Um, the, the setting, apart from the university, the, the other main setting for this book, which is Vic's house, in the Sydney suburb of Leichhardt, um, that is where I've lived for the last 15 or more years. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's yeah, again, it's not a residency situation. It is it's it's home, um, but it, again, a lot of ideas that I think are, are really travel to any kind of similar suburb that was once uh, quite working class and where average person with an average job could afford to have a little two bedroom house. And where now that is an absolute oh my ridiculous gosh. dream. No, I can't last, but it's it's a shocking <laughs> at the moment. Agreed. Yeah, so I, I think that was interesting in all of this too, that, you know, I did need it to be somewhere. It was somewhere I'm familiar with, obviously, because I live here, but it is always also somewhere where someone like Nick could be a homeowner if she got in in the 80s or, in her case, inherited it from a parent who, who got in in the 80s. She would never be able to buy a house in Sydney now at all, nowhere near it. Um, and it was important for reasons that, that you'll know from reading the book that she was actually an owner of the house because her story would play out quite differently if she was renting. Yeah, yeah. And I do feel like, you know, Sydney is almost a character. It's this, there's such a sense of, um, and maybe this is because it's home and you know it so well, but, you know, there's such a sense of, of the place and, and almost a kind of love letter to, you know, through maybe as much through Nick's eyes because Nick is so observant. But I really, you know, you really get the sense of um, of this place being, you know, kind of cherished in the same way as some of the objects are. Yeah, I'm glad that came through to you because I, I really um, did feel that about her. She She's actually someone who, you know, again, from the outside and certainly once she ends up in hospital, people would see as, you know, very disturbed or troubled or unfortunate or pity her. But right up to the point when she has the accident at Lanford Hospital, she, she actually really has a life that brings her a lot of pleasure and joy. And that is in her walk home from work. It is in the objects she pays attention to. It's, it's noticing the trees changing at various times of year. But, but there, is a, there is a real um, awareness of beauty that brings a lot of pleasure into her life. Mm, yes. So um, we've talked a lot about, um, about uh, the book and the characters of the book. I just want to pivot just briefly before we wrap up and talk about mentoring because you yourself are a mentor and you've talked about the value of mentoring. Um, why do you think mentoring is so important and so valuable? It's, it's actually, I would almost go so far as to say mentoring is a kind of um, a strange kind of family oriented theme in the book. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure how it plays out, but I do get the sense that there is a kind of mentoring that goes on. Yeah, oh, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, so I I mentor emerging writers. It's uh, become a huge part of my work, but also um, my life in the sense of my creative life, I guess. I Speaking just from a selfish point of view, I get so much out of it because uh, any writer will tell you it is much, much easier to see the problems in someone else's work than to see them in your own. It's much easier to see the the whole structure in your head of someone else's novel and figure out what it needs and what needs to happen and to to get lots of practice at doing that in other people's work and talking about different ways of addressing it 
it, it is just endlessly educational for me and helpful for me. Um, the other side of it, though, as someone being mentored, I had my first what I think of as a breakthrough as a writer, and I don't mean in a career sense, I mean in the writing itself, um, when I was awarded a mentorship through the Australian Society of Authors and I was matched with the late Liam Davidson. I had never shown anyone my writing. It was an absolute secret, secret thing that I was doing in the middle of the night. Um, I applied for that mentorship. So that was the first time I'd thrown it to anyone, but to have it looked in depth by Liam. And he pulled no punches with me, which was, you know, a bit shocking at first because there was a lot that needed work. But he took my writing seriously. Like it was worth critiquing. It was worth talking about. It was worth working on. And that was just mind-blowing for me because I didn't know any writers. I didn't have that experience of someone actually talking to me as if I was, um, yeah, someone to be taken seriously and have my work taken seriously. And I see that happen all the time with people I work with, that, that uh, emerging writers can be very apologetic, oh, I think this is very good and full of all these doubts. But as soon as you take that work seriously and make it not about them, but about the work, how, how can we make this the novel or the piece of writing that you want it to be, um, then, then a, a different phase of their thinking about the work kind of takes over. It's not just about their ego or something they've always wanted to do anymore. It's a, it's a real project that they're putting their passion into and can get a different uh, kind of really useful detachment from. And um, having been through that experience myself, I just know how important it was to my development as a writer. Like my, my ability to analyse and critique and improve my own work just skyrocketed after that, just that switch in mindset. Mm. Um, and so that, you know, that is something that I obviously really believe in and think is incredibly important. Oh. Wonderful. So um, I know that Love Objects is not even quite out yet. <laughs> it's almost out, but not quite. Um, yeah. Very lucky to have an advanced copy. Uh, but um, how you are you working on something new? I know it takes a while for the books to come out as well. Something in the pipeline? I, I have um, some notes and fragments <laughs> for something new. So I, I started work on something new. I'm sort of putting it aside for a while to concentrate on um, getting this book out into the world. But, it, but yes, I, I definitely have some stuff to return to that hopefully will become a novel. That's good. Wonderful. So um, we are out of time now, but thank you so much for joining me today. And listeners, we've been discussing Emily McGuire's book, Love Objects, which is published by Alan and Unwin. Um, and this is the Newcastle Writers Festival Stories to You series, which will continue until the end of May. And episodes will be available every Wednesday morning. So please follow the Newcastle Writers Festival on Facebook and Instagram for regular updates. And the in-person 2021 festival will be held from September 24th to 26th. Thank you very much and bye for now. to you.